evening, everybody. It's Farage at Large. We're here in Folkestone for the second instalment of this tour, which will go right round the United Kingdom. We're going to cover national issues. We're going to cover big local issues. And here we are in Folkestone on Trafalgar Day on the English Channel. Folkestone has always been at the front line of everything that has been important to this country for centuries. And right now, of course, that is a migration crisis. Nearly 20,000 people have crossed the Channel so far this year in small dinghies. We will talk to people about that. We'll ask whether there's a solution. But to begin, the big national story, I'm sorry to say, but it's COVID-19. It's back. You thought it had gone away. It hasn't. It will now dominate our national conversation for weeks and months to come. In fact, I suspect it'll be the top of every news bulletin between now and Christmas. A friend of mine said this morning, can't we have Brexit back, please? It wasn't quite as depressing as talking about COVID-19. We've seen the British Medical Association yesterday, many of their senior managers urging Plan B was put into place, more overnight saying the same. What does Plan B mean? Well, it means the mandatory wearing of face masks. It means vaccine passports and many other restrictions on our life. The government yesterday was slightly cagey. They don't want to go for Plan B, but Sajid Javid basically said, unless you go and get your booster jabs, you will lose your freedoms, which struck me as being something of an oxymoron. And he's gone further overnight. You know, he says that if we feel at any point it's become unsustainable, we won't hesitate to act. That means only one thing. They are contemplating locking us back down again if the case rates get to 100,000 a day and if the numbers being admitted to hospital get too high. You see, we have to protect the NHS. Perhaps I've missed something here. I thought the NHS was here to protect us. And I have to tell you, nearly two years into this, if they do bring in vaccine passports, oh, and overnight, Tony Blair, the Blair Institute, is urging the immediate introduction of vaccine passports. I think we're not too far away from the government following Scotland and making us have vaccine passports. That would mean coming into this magnificent building here in Folkestone, which is a Weatherspoons pub, you would need to show a vaccine passport to come and buy a drink. But the government knows something, and that is that we've been very well behaved very well compliant over the course of the last couple of years, but I sense we're getting close to breaking point. I sense if they try and lock us back down again, there'll be many millions of people who will say, the hell with it. And I have to tell you, I will not be showing any vaccine passport to go and buy a pint in Weatherspoons or any other pub. I just don't think that makes sense. I don't believe that is a reasonable reasonable step to take. It's too big an infringement on our liberties. But let's discuss now with my guests. Are the government guilty of hypocrisy? As they say, we should now wear face masks, but in the House of Commons not many Tories were today. And let's talk about how well or badly we think Boris Johnson's government has handled this. Yes, I know they keep telling us it was unprecedented. Indeed it was. But how well or badly have they handled it? And are we moving towards vaccine passports. And how would you at home feel about that? And I'm going to ask the audience here in Folkestone how they would feel about carrying 
vaccine passports. So joining me this evening to discuss this is Nigel Nelson. We've got a very rare Christian name, haven't we? we just... There were no Nigels born <laughs> last year. I think it could be your fault, actually, not mine. I'm not sure. Because um, you are, of course, political editor of the Sunday Mirror, a Labour-supporting newspaper, a Remain newspaper, um, and generally pretty critical of this government. And alongside you is Claire Purcell, who takes the opposite view on virtually everything, a lever, a Conservative councillor in Sevenoaks, you both live in the county, um, and a supporter of Boris Johnson and the government. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have two people here, diametrically opposed to each other politically, but here's the remarkable thing. Not only do they live in Kent, but they're actually married. How about that? <laughs> Let's begin, perhaps, with what may be the more critical voice. Have this government led through the COVID crisis or been blown around by events, Nigel? Totally blown around. I mean, from the, from the start, you can understand that not a lot was known about the virus uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. But they got pretty much everything wrong. So the herd immunity idea, which they started out with, with would have killed 500,000 people. OK, again, they didn't know very much at that point. What they did know last year was that if they'd locked down a week earlier, lives would have been saved. What they also knew last year is that if they hadn't taken um, patients out of hospital and discharged them into care homes with COVID, at least 20,000 more older people would now be alive. So it was mistake after mistake all the way through. Um, the vaccines, of course, have made us all feel much better. We can now go around the place without masks. We can uh, socialise. We can do things we couldn't do last year. For now. For now, yep. Um, and the danger at the moment is that he's about to make the same mistakes he made last year again. Um, infections are going up uh, far too high. We're doing 40,000 infections a day. That compares 9,000 9, in Germany. The last 24 hours, the figure was 52,000. Well, that would compare with 9,000 in Germany, 5,000 in France, 3,000 in Italy. We have the highest infection rate in, in Western Europe. And the only way that we can actually keep those infections down is to lock down. It's the one thing that's been proved to absolutely you work. want to lock us no, down No, I don't. Again. What I want is, to act, is for them to act before a lockdown happens. The way to act is get a plan B, B in position, and that means mass social distancing working from home and COVID passports. Well, there you are. So, Claire, it is difficult to disagree that some very big mistakes were made. Yeah. I mean, the emptying out of the wards of people who were COVID positive into the old people's homes was dreadful and, and prematurely ended the lives of 20,000 people. That's unarguable. But overall, how do you feel they've handled it? Are they leading or are they following? I think this is really difficult and when you start looking at numbers of infections it doesn't take into account that you have children in those figures you have so young schools, children schools, so schools, yeah. schools yeah. have been a vector of infection as most parents will attest to however children are not becoming incredibly ill they are also majority of them under the age of the vaccination program in place currently and will therefore become relatively immune to COVID so they're being put into this figure which is bumping 
it up. And we all knew from the beginning of September that that would happen. So I think if you remove those, you would get a much more accurate view of what the infection rate actually is. But I think you need to also look at how ill it is making people. The majority of people are vaccinated twice. So therefore, they are not becoming as ill as they would have done. But now we're being told to get a, now we're being told to get a third vaccination, and if we're over fifty, to get a flu vaccination as well. And people are getting a bit bored with this. Yes, they are. They don't. People generally don't like being told what to do because it will have an end result. So it's have a jab, otherwise we'll take your freedoms away. Now, I don't agree with that messaging. I think that sends out all of the wrong reasons to people to go and have it. And people tolerated it last year. They got messed around at Christmas. They made plans which were withdrawn. Well, they did. They and and, and isn't it funny? It's that, not that, right to do it again. You know, Christmas was cancelled by Boris, your party leader. And yet now we learn that in Downing Street, their mate Nimco Ali was there spending Christmas with them, and they claim that because she was part of a child support bubble. I mean, we've seen minister after minister, public figure after public figure, who telling us what we can and can't do, and the fact we can't see our grandparents or whatever, whatever else it is, and yet broke the rules themselves. And denies breaking the rules, and yet the rules are perfectly clear. Uh, you can have a childcare bubble, that's fine, yeah. but it's actually for childcare. It's not for going around for Christmas lunch. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, I do think that's right. Claire, if it comes to it, how do you feel as a Conservative councillor, a representative in this county, how do you feel about Covid passports? Do they make sense on medical grounds? And moreover, do they make sense in terms of living in a free, open democracy? No, they don't. It goes against everything that is a free and open democracy and everything that it stands for. I can understand them if you wish to travel to a country that requires you to show something, as you would for vaccinations uh, to go to a country if you have to have yellow fever, typhoid. Yeah. You suck that up and you yeah. have it and you take your yellow card with you. But for walking into your local Weatherspoons, into a cafe, into a cinema, uh, into a bowling alley, no, absolutely not. It's going to stop those businesses from being able to run. And haven't we hit businesses enough already over the last 18 months? Well, I think certainly the, I mean, you know, the smaller private businesses have paid a big price. Well, do you, do you think we're going to have COVID passports introduced in England? Uh, I mean, who knows? They say no, but then they mull it over, and I do worry about the U-turn coming to this. <laughs> However, there is a real vocal uh, force at play in the party, uh, the likes of Steve Baker for argument's sake, is very against that. And the backbenches are full of those people having the same thoughts and who are willing to, to speak out. They're and Nigel, you think that it's a price worth paying on health grounds, we should follow the medical advice, and it's going to happen anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I think Claire, in fact, it sort of makes that point, that the, um, if you want to do something, if you want to travel abroad, you get your yellow fever jabs and anything yeah. you need to do. Um, so what I'm against is actually jabs for jobs. I don't think somebody should be made to have uh, a jab to do their job because uh, working is a right. But if you want to go to a nightclub, if you want to go to a pub, I don't see anything uh, wrong about having to show a COVID passport <laughs> while no. COVID uh, is still there. But, but, 
COVID could be there for five years, uh, for maybe, ten years. It may be here forever. Uh, what, um, so, you want, so you want us to have these vaccine passports forever? No, I'm just saying that it, we have it as long as COVID is, and if it is forever, yes, we will have to carry on doing it. And eventually it'll become second nature. You'll just show, show your COVID passports Papers, please. Yeah. Papers, please. Well, is that the country we want to live in? Well, it, it, no, it's not, but I don't want to live in a COVID country either. <laughs> and what I want to do is try and, try and do something about getting rid of this disease. And the best way of doing that is not to keep, keep locking down, opening up, and then catching it again. So that's what I'm really after. And I think COVID passports will be a way to stop it spreading. Final question to both of you. And by the way, if COVID passports do come in, and you're invited out to dinner. You're go. You're staying at home, aren't you? Because well, clearly, because yes, you yeah. won't have a COVID passport. Final question: If we do get to this, and, and, and I sense this debate is going to be the big debate over the course of the next few weeks. I can see it. I can feel it. Uh, clearly, infections are rising. Hospitalizations are rising. Most of it's young people, but it's not solely young people. I do think. Tony Blair's influence on this government is remarkable in terms of policy that they've adopted and taken. If it comes to us being told we have to carry COVID passports, do you think the great British public will comply with this, as they have with virtually everything else over the last two years? No, I don't. I think this is a step too far, and everybody has put in place all, you know, they've adhered to all of the restrictions. I think this one now is taking it too far for the majority of people. Okay. Nigel? I think they'll comply. I mean, um, I think the, the, the British public have been remarkable since this started. Um, Boris Johnson didn't believe we would actually stay in our houses when the lockdown was, was uh, ordered. And we did. And we did. And we did. And we behaved ourselves really well. Yeah. And I think that, that it, it was one step further to trying to live a normal life. Eventually, we'll go for it. Let's ask our crowd here in Folkestone. If COVID passports are brought in, are you going to comply and do it? You see, the people of Kent have always been so rebellious, and clearly they are too here in Folkestone this evening. I want to thank Claire. I want to thank Nigel. In a moment, let's discuss what's been going on across the English Channel this year. Nearly 20,000 people so far have been processed through that centre in Dover. Is there a solution? On Brazier at 8, data just in on the Pfizer COVID booster jab. It's good news. Join me for that. Also, as bin men go on strike in Glasgow, could they learn a lesson in industrial action from these striking flight attendants in Rome? And on this Trafalgar Day, one of Britain's greatest historians tells us why it's time for patriots to stand up for Lord Nelson. That's Brazier from 8. Welcome back to Farage at Large here in Folkestone. And there is no issue that is more contentious in Kent at the moment than what is going on in the English Channel. Last year, 8,400 people crossed the Channel. These are illegal crossings. They're organised uh, by criminal gangs. Uh, the people that come, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because earlier this week, here in Folkestone, because Folkestone's always the front line of everything, there was a puppet, a three-and-a-half-metre-tall puppet of a Syrian girl appeared here in Folkestone this week, and Jude Law, being the lovey that he is, turned up as if to say, isn't it wonderful, you know, we're opening our arms, we're offering the hand of friendship to poor people from all over the world. 
The one thing about that argument that's always struck me is, firstly, those that come are coming from a safe country, namely France, which is a safe country, unless you're a British fisherman, it might be different then. But that over 90% of those that have come this year aren't young Syrian girls, they're young men. They're young men between the ages of 18 and 30, uh, and most of whom, I think, would have come from countries where they would never qualify for refugee status. This is an issue that I felt very, very strongly about. But I could see that the pull factors are very great. And the pull factors are that you come to this country, you're going to get put up in a four-star hotel, you're going to get put up in private accommodation, you're going to get three meals a day, you're going to get dental care, you might even get to see a GP, which many living in this country can't. You'll get 38 quid a week spending money, and, if we're being frank about it, the illegal economy in this country is too big, and many will finish up working in the black market, earning cash in hand. Although the reality for most will be, far from being Dick Whittington's dream, many of the men will end up in effective slavery, and as far as the women are concerned, well, you can make your own minds up on that. I said earlier this year I thought that the number this year would be 20,000. Well, we're almost at 20,000 already, and if we get some good weather between now and Christmas, it will be 30,000. And next year, who's to say, unless something changes, this could be on the scale of the Mediterranean. I really mean it. So let's analyse what's going on here, and let's find out, is there a solution? And I'm joined, firstly, by Ivan Sampson, immigration lawyer at Privadas. Ivan, we can't go on like this, can we? Well, Nigel, look, I... I deal in facts. As a lawyer, I present facts, I look at the law and, and attach facts to the law. What, what, what did I just say that wasn't factual? Well, first of all, you, you said that most of these people are, you inferred they're mic economic migrants. I the did. Re the reality is, is that if you heard the Home Affairs Select Committee on the 3rd of September, where Abby Tierney, the Home Office official giving evidence, said that the two-thirds of those crossing the channel are genuine refugees. That's a fact. Okay. Is, is, and, and is that because they're in fear of their lives and their liberty because of their religion or their race? Well, it's because the Refugee Convention says they are, and they've been assessed and deemed to be refugees by the Home Office. That's a fact. But hang on a second, that's wrong, isn't it? No, that's absolutely correct. Because when it comes to, when it comes to, and it takes months or years, mm. but when it comes to actually them being assessed, the vast majority fail. No. I'm talking about the channel crossings. So am I. So 70% of those coming across the channel have actually claimed asylum previously. And this is the problem because we can't return them to France. And the reason we can't return them because we are no longer part of the Dublin Convention. That's the problem. So ah. what Priti Patel should be doing is entering into bilateral agreements with the European Union so that 70% of them could be returned. I have to say, Ivan, your figures, I, I dispute your figures completely. I think the numbers that have claimed asylum previously are probably nearer 20% than 70% because the Holy Grail is getting to this country because they can see this country is a soft touch in every way. You know, we're going to give people four-star accommodation, we're going to look after them medically, and they know. I mean, of those that have come this year, even if your figure was right, right, and it's not, but even if your figure was right, 
if the 30% that have come this year would never qualify. Not one has been deported. Not one. There's a reason for that. The problem Priti Patel has is twofold. One is that they don't have identity documents. And so, why is that? Because most of them will dispose of them before getting here. Well, shouldn't, um, that, shouldn't, that, shouldn't that disqualify them? Well, look, for, I'll give you an example. As a refugee, you can actually enter into the country with a false document. You can do that. You can have a fake passport. The Refugee Convention was drafted loosely because the founders who drafted it knew the problems that refugees face. Look, I dealt with a refugee recently, two sisters. One had been shot in the head by a criminal gang. The other one had been told, while we rape you, unless you enjoy it, we're going to shoot you as well. You see, the, these are the types of people, the genuine refugees. What we have to do is identify the genuine refugees. So, these, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I think we all understand there are genuine refugees, and this country, through centuries, has given home to French Huguenots, to Jewish people, to Ugandan Asians. I mean, nobody could ever say this country wasn't close-minded to those in genuine need. I think the problem we have are the images, Ivan, of very, and quite often quite aggressive young men coming into this country, uh, and we're asking ourselves why, we're asking ourselves where's the end to this, and let me ask you this question. What number is acceptable to cross the channel for us? I think as a country we need to accept about 100,000 a year. And uh, let me explain. Let me explain. Let me explain. Because I, I know it sounds like a no, shock no, to you. No, go on, please. We I, have, I'm all ears. We have about 26 million refugees. Amnesty International is a genuine refugees around the world, approximately. Of those half are children. We accept about 3,000 children a year of the 14 million refugee children in the world. That's what we accept. 3,300 every year. There are 149 signatories to the convention. Now, we accept 0.001% of the refugees in the world. Those are the facts. If you look at Germany, they accept 100,000. I accept it's a bigger country with a greater population, but if we worked out per capita, we can stop the migrant channel crossing mm. by simply processing each refugee outside the UK in designated centres. And, and is that your solution to the Absolutely. channel problem? Absolutely, and the okay, UNCHR fine. needs to allocate refugees, every country needs to take their share, All right. including this So country. Ivan, your proposal for solving this problem, and I mean, I'm amazed there have not been mass drownings. I'm amazed, given how busy those shipping lanes are, we've not had a day when 50 are drowned or whatever. Is your solution, and we may disagree on numbers, but is your solution to this, we have an offshore processing centre to, to see who is and is not a refugee. Alright, I'm going to go to Out Mehmet, Migration Watch. That, I mean, you may disagree with the numbers that Ivan's put forward, but is the idea of an offshore processing centre perhaps allied to saying that anybody that wants to come across by boat will never be allowed to stay? Could that be a way through this problem? Where does one start? Um, there's a great deal that I disagree with Ivan on um, without going into detail. So with, before I come back to your Well, let's start with detail. He says 100,000 a year. What do you think? Most certainly not. Uh, let's, let's... <laughs> well, well, that's not really an answer, is it? Come on. Let's... I mean... well, wait a minute. I mean, let's bear in mind that over the last 20 years, just 20 years, four and a half million overseas people, 
foreigners, four and a half million, have actually come to this country. So it's not as if we haven't got foreign people, uh, immigrants coming into the country. I know we're talking about uh, refugees, we're talking about asylum seekers. Germany, 100,000. How many of those does actually, Germany actually wants to be there? A lot of them are there anyway. The, the Continentals, frankly, are in no position to lecture to us about how we treat asylum seekers and refugees. In France, those who apply for uh, asylum, at yep. the first decision that's made, the most recent figures that I, I've had, 20%, 20% were accepted, 80% were rejected, mm -hmm. they failed. In this country, the first decision-making part of the process, 54% have been accepted. We have had thousands, be it the, the Syrian scheme, be it now the Afghan scheme, be it those who actually enter legally but then decide not to go and when they're nabbed, yeah. what do they do? They uh, appeal, they, they uh, uh, um, apply for asylum. With those that haven't gone back, it has nothing to do with the Dublin Convention, which was a total waste of time. It took a huge amount of resources actually to assess and analyze people. And then it was very much a case, many more coming in this direction than went in the other <coughs> direction. So, yeah, I, I won't have it, frankly, that somehow when we were part of the EU, this was all a lot no, easier. No. The reason why they're coming, I'll tell you why they're coming, and you're right, more than double uh, really what it was last yeah. year, and we were both saying at the beginning of the year, we're heading towards 20, 25,000. Well, we're almost at the 25,000 level, level 20, yeah. now. Now, we... The fact is that people are coming because they can, because it's easy. The moment that you are stepping into a dinghy, you're effectively home and dry. Until we can re reverse that perception. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But it's OK, because Priti Patel gave a tough speech at the Tory conference, so it's all going to be sorted, isn't Did it? Did she? Oh, yes, yeah, she always oh, gives I, tough speeches. No, I didn't hear any toughness in the speech that well, she was. But, uh, but, but, I mean... The point, Ivan's right, isn't it? That as soon as they're in a dinghy, as soon as they're a couple of hundred yards off the shore, they're here, they're going to stay. If we sat here this time next year, where would we be with this? I think, look, we need to take asylum process out of the hands of the Home Office. They're not fit to run the asylum system. You might get a big level of agreement in this because room on that one, I think. If you look at the backlog of asylum decisions, and the length of time it takes to make those decisions. I know, I know. It's years, and it costs an extraordinary amount of money. So this time next year, where will we be? I think well, there's going to be bilateral agreements. There has to be. With France? With France. And, well, with the whole of the EU, U27. But we need to put asylum in the hands of the UNCHR. That's what we need to do. Have outs See, if we had an offshore processing centre, when a migrant came across to the UK, we just send them back, legally send them back. No, I get that, so, that point I get. We would take the decision-making process, we should take it out of the hands of the Home Office, 
put it in the hands of the UNCHR, funded well, I suspect, by 149 countries. I, I suspect if UNHCR were in charge, but they'd be asking ask us to take a, a million every year. Uh, final word to you, Al. <laughs> final word to you, Al. Where are we going to be this time next year? Where are we? It, it depends, but my belief is that very little will happen to change what is happening now, and we could be looking at 30,000, 40,000 next year. And unless we start sending people back and really being forceful about that, I'm afraid it's going to continue because they can. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you very much, both indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as I said, it's a very, very contentious issue here in Kent. Uh, in extraordinary, we've got uh, on Monday, when the weather was really quite rough, and the boats were still coming, and we had the Ramsgate lifeboat out, we had the Dover lifeboat out, we had the Dungeness lifeboat out, and Border Force were sat in Dover, they said it was too rough to go out, despite the big cutters they've got. Um, and there are real tensions here with the RNLI, uh, because you know, the people that serve on those boats are giving of their time voluntarily. Uh, and I worry what damage this is doing to one of the great institutions of this country. Let's talk to some members of the public. Um, Kim Rye. Kim, you're a, a parish councillor in Lyd, Lyd very much on the front line of this. What was interesting, I thought about, I mean, two very different perspectives that we heard, but both kind of agreeing, it doesn't look like anything's going to change. How, how, do, your, how do your people, in your, you know, living in Lyd, living in Dungeness, how much apprehension, how much anger is there about this issue? There's a lot, but it's very, very closeted, because people are afraid of being labelled with isms when they express any kind of opinion on this subject. Most people are very accepting of people from outside this country. If people want to come in and work and have a new life, that's fine. Most of the people that I know agree on that, but the problem is, you say anything about it, you're labelled with an ism. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And does, do people feel safe? Because that was the question. What struck me was again and again we see we see these dinghies with 50, 60 people on, landing on the shingle in Kent, and these young men just running off into the countryside. I mean, there must be a concern for some people around this. The, the figure of 30, 40,000 projected figure for next year, we don't know how many people are in this country know. now, because a lot of them just abscond. Mm. They're not picked up by border force or RNLI, they just disappear. We see them running through the town. Yeah. We see them running across the shingle. The ones I've actually seen getting off of boats in Dungeness largely are wearing clothes that you wouldn't associate with a refugee. They've got designer labels on, gold chains. They look well fed. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, Kim, Kim, thank you for that contribution. This debate will go on and on, and I, and I will return to it in future episodes in Kent. Now, it's time for a quick fire, barrage the farage, and that's where, as the audience come in, they write down questions, the producers pick some of those people. I do not see the questions beforehand. I really don't. There's no cheating on this at all. So let's kick this off. Let's ask Rose Brown. You've got a question for me. Nigel, you're very good at headlining news, but have you got a working group and a plan in place to enable or come alongside the government 
to put in, into place the plans and policies needed to address the problem that the country faces, especially with the migration. So my relationship with the Conservative Party and with this government is um, poor. Um, partly because they're not even Conservative anymore. They've gone green. They've gone green and you're all going to pay for it. But isn't that lovely? We'll save the planet. It's fantastic. Um, look, after the, Bre after the Brexit, I was a Conservative back in the 80s. You know, I thought after the 70s, after the problems we had, we needed, you know, that tough medicine. I think it worked to a certain extent. I do. Um, the Tories resent me completely because they think I cost them basically Cameron and May's premiership. They want nothing to do with me, and that's fine. Um, I think they're very stupid. I, think I could be a very good friend to them, but if they want me as an enemy... I've been a, a thorn in their side in the past, and I'll be a thorn in their side again. And what was, what was amazing was I had a relationship with a man in America. Uh, you might have heard of him, some of you. <laughs> but I had a good relationship with Donald Trump, and I'd meet Donald Trump and speak to Donald Trump. And they are, and they are our most important partner in the world, without question. At no point, at no point did the Foreign Office or anybody call me in to do a debrief on how Trump was thinking about this country. And they were prepared to put their personal enmity of me above what would have been in the interest of the country. And I've got to be honest with you, Rose, I haven't got much respect, really, for very many of them at all. That's where we are. But I've been good at changing national narratives, and I will go on changing national narratives, and GB News will change national narratives. And the station is long overdue. <laughs> Let's, uh, thank you. Let's go to Ollie Corney. Ollie. Good evening, Mr. Good evening. Um, speaking about Donald Trump, what do you think of his new social media platform, and do you think it will help him if he has desires for re-election? <laughs> so I was actually in America earlier this year. I was at Mar-a-Lago. Um, I was there for a few days at the end of April, um, and uh, he was on great form. Great form, you know, he'd lost a lot of weight, playing a lot of golf, not living under that enormous pressure. Um, but he's been silenced. And you can like Trump, you can loathe Trump. And, you know, he is, he's a New Yorker. He's a brash New Yorker. He's outspoken. He's unguarded. He says and behaves in a way we don't expect American presidents to speak and behave. And some people love him and some people absolutely can't stand him. But it is I tweeted a few weeks ago, I tweeted, isn't it remarkable that the leadership of the Taliban are active on Twitter and the 45th president of the USA is banned? And that's a disgrace. That is a disgrace. <clears throat> and then you've got Facebook. Facebook enormously powerful. But hey, I've got, I've got, I've got a tip for all of you. Now that Nick Clegg's joined them in a senior position, they'll go down the tubes fairly quickly, I'm sure. Um, but you know, Nick Clegg has enormous power now. You know, three billion monthly users of, of Facebook. And Clegg has enormous power over what we can and can't see. Something has gone very, very wrong. Big tech, uh, those, those, those new means of communication, when they first arrived, were enormously valuable. 
I could never have got UKIP to where it was. We'd never have got Brexit without YouTube and the other social media channels. They now realise the implications of ordinary people having a voice, and they've gone back the other way. As for Trump's new initiative, I don't know. I just don't know. But do we need something to rival to rival Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, in the interests of free speech, fairness and democracy, you bet your life we do. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go to Terry, Terry Hampston. Good evening, Nigel. Hi, Terry. Nigel, did Boris Johnson deceive the public at the last election by pretending that he was a Conservative? <laughs> yeah, there used to be a thing called the Trades Description Act, didn't there? I think that's not, not in law anymore. Um, look, you know, I, I, Boris is a likeable human being. Um, he's jolly. Um, he's not dull. Uh, and we need a bit of that because we had years, you know, of front benches. They, I mean, they were dull as ditch water on both sides. So Boris is jolly. Um, I don't think he believes in very much. I think he wants to climb the the greasy pole and get to the top. He's been good at it. And he's been good at elections. You know, he won twice in London. That was quite an achievement. Um, on Brexit, well, at five minutes to midnight, he decided he'd back Brexit. Thank goodness he did, because he did make a difference in that campaign. But you're right, he seems to be, he seems to be completely enthralled to the new Mrs. Johnson, and to some very wealthy people from southwest London. And we all want a better, cleaner, greener planet. But I can't really see the point of forcing homes to have expensive heat pumps. And if, that, if you live in Richmond in a £4 million house, the cost of a heat pump is irrelevant. But to ordinary folk, it is very, very relevant. And what's the point of any of it? if China are going to build 100 new coal-fired power stations this year. And I think there are millions of Conservatives asking who the hell is he. Right, I'm going to take just one more very, very quickly. Tom Donnelly. Hi, Nigel. Um, would you encourage the UK to stop being dependent on Chinese goods and imports? Because yes. Your American friend, yes. let's go Brandon. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I look... I, <laughs> I loathe the extent to which so many in the British establishment are now in the thrall of China. Former senior civil servants, former politicians, former big business figures are now increasingly in the pay of China. And China, before President Xi, we could argue that China was its own country, could do its own thing. They are clearly now expansionists. They clearly now want to take the world over. And I think most British consumers are prepared to pay a little bit more to buy products if they were made in this country. I really, really do. Now, I'm out of time. Going to take a break. In a moment, we're going to be talking pints with David Starkey. So tonight... Tonight, the GB News pub is not virtual in the studio, it's real here in Folkestone, and a jolly good place it is too, and I'm joined by David Starkey. David, welcome to Talking Pub. <laughs> well, here we are in historic 
Folkestone, mm-hmm. and a very historic building, of course. You know, magnificent building. A former Baptist chapel. A Baptist. The fate of the holy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's Trafalgar Day, of course, um, and it was from this port that those millions of men went across the channel in the First World War. They nearly all went, I think, from Folkestone. You're living just down the road here in Kent. You've been here for 20-odd years. I think I want to ask you, before I get on to your controversies, many of me, which make me look really like a sort of shrinking liberal violet. I, didn't, it, it, trans- <laughs> I didn't transform British history. You are, you are the politician singly responsible for Brexit. It would not true. And compared with that, you know, my little piddlings on the margins of politics and here and all that. <laughs> well, David, that's very sweet of you. Where did the love, and I, you know, I watched your programmes, the Tudors, they were magnificent programmes. What was clear when you were presenting those programmes was how much of you was in that. You loved that period, you love history, and you were desperate to impart not just wisdom, but passion about the subjects and about the people. And kind of, history is about people, isn't it? Of course. It's about human behaviour. It was a catastrophe of how I was taught at school and at Cambridge. History was a succession of abstract nouns, class, population, industry. It's not. An idea only matters because somebody thought of it, somebody believes it, somebody opposes it, Passionately, it's inside you. History is inside people. It's why, you know, let's be really complacent here. Historians get better, uh, a bit like, dare one say, in one sense, failed politicians, as they get older, because you've more experience. You, you can't write about, you can't communicate unless you've been in love unless you've been out of love, unless you've enjoyed success and failure. You have to have that experience. So it's one life talking about another life. And it is the problem with how history is taught academically. It's the problem with what's gone wrong in our schools. It is that teachers themselves, I was talking to one just here now as a trainee teacher, they're frightened to express themselves. They're silenced. Passion that desire to communicate, you can't have a clamp on your mouth. You can't be looking up a hand list of approved words. We've to trust. Where did your love of history come from? Where did it start? Sort of accidentally. I was supposed to be a physicist, believe it or not. Good Lord. My best subjects were physics and chemistry. But I was wise enough. I was very fortunate. I was in a tiny little grammar school of 300. Two of us got open scholarships to Cambridge, and two of them and another lad went as well. They were natural mathematicians. They could see numbers. You know, numbers meant something. For me, I'm afraid, do we share this? A number means something to me only when there's a pound or dollars. <laughs> and at which point, you know, I become really very adept with numbers, but not otherwise. But like you, I have a gift with words. But for me, history was the ideal alternative subject because it's grounded in fact. See, one of the great disasters of this whole woke revolution that you and I are fighting is the attack on the notion of fact, the replacement with feeling, that replacement with my truth, that form of license. Meghan and Harry. Meghan and Harry. Speaking your truth. Speaking your truth. The licensed lie. History is grounded in fact. And my job as a historian, because actually I'm quite a serious one really, um, is the wonderful encounter with the document, 
the wonderful encounter with that human evidence. The first time I looked at a document, and there was the rather tremulous, big, bold, because he's shaking his pen, handwriting of Henry VIII. The reading yeah. the letter of a lad who's going to be executed the following morning to his parents and his wife. If you don't have that urge of human sympathy, the report of Anne Boleyn, you know, literally six hours before she's executed, it's told how it's going to be done. It's the origin of the expression, chin up. You know, you, you're executed, yeah. she is executed with a swinging sword. What is her response? Well, at least... I have a little neck. You know, you can't respond Amazing. to that. Amazing. Was Henry VIII the first Brexiteer? Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know what? On the, on, the eve of, on the eve of the vote that you won, I was convinced we, I will use that now, yeah. were going to lose. And I wrote a very elaborate, a bit like Boris, you know, with his two S. I wrote a very elaborate essay, this is the end of the England of Henry VIII. But it wasn't. Henry VIII is still here. Henry defines England. Henry is the first person to see England as a single strategic problem. Henry, by the way, is very much better at managing the ports than our current government. You know what? They, they, they didn't actually have electronics, but they were actually able to stop people going in and out very, very effectively. Uh, it's Henry who first creates what you've got round here, this extraordinary chain of fortifications. I mean, our great problem is, what is the use of an island? if you don't actually defend that island frontier. As we're discovering now with the channel, it's simply a means of getting across. It's easier than a land frontier. Yeah. Yeah, we've got, the, Mart we, we've got Martello Towers down this coast. We've got the Royal the Military Henry VIII, Canal. The we've got Castle, yeah, all of it. Yeah. All abandoned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've given up on that. David, your love of history, your ability to present history on television and to do it very, very well, which you did, and very successfully. Oh dear, past tense. But, well, no, very, well, actually, very past tense. Very past tense. Because we live in, and we know we live in a world where people are sensitive, overly sensitive in terms of what people say. But for somebody incredibly intelligent, you did make a couple of remarks. I won't re-rehearse them, we don't need to. You did make a couple of remarks that were pretty crass, and I think you probably would admit that now. And you have been cancelled. I mean, you, were, you lost your uh, university positions, you had, I think, some books um, cancelled. Do you accept that what you said was rather stupid, or was it all part of free speech and open debate? Uh, what I said, uh, come on, please, you clearly haven't been keeping up. I, I apologised at the time. I remember that, um, yes. But there's no point in doing that. What I said was stupid, I used uh, a word, and come on, Nigel, you've never, ever, under any circumstance, no. made a mistake, have you? Not after a few you, of these, no. no. You, 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 <laughs> like, you, like the people in The Guardian and the BBC, <laughs> always observe discretion, complete balance, total impartiality. Absolutely. Nothing ever slips through your lips. Well, I'm no. afraid it did. Yes. Uh, and it was stupid. And I paid a price. But you know what? I haven't paid all that bad a price. I was very fortunate. I, thanks to all those years of television, I was prosperous. Yep. The university appointments were merely honorary. And also, do you know what? You really do discover who friends are. Um, yeah, I bet. I was, well, I was equally very fortunate. I didn't lose a single person that I valued. You then also discover what 
titles and honorifics are worth. If they can be taken away for a single word, what is the value of them? They are worthless. What I did, I learned that the people conferring those distinctions have no right to do so, that they represent nothing. If something that's supposedly given to you because you're a distinguished historian is taken away because of a single slip of the tongue, that is not justice, that is not reason, that is not the proper correction of behavior. It is mere crass vengeance. It is a desire... It is also an act of gross ingratitude. When you have given, as I did, to my college and to the University of Cambridge, do you know what? The reason that I was not with James, my late partner, when he died, was I was doing a speech at King's College, Cambridge. David. So it is an act of mere-like ingratitude. You have been one of the biggest victims of cancel culture. But let me ask you one last question. No, never the word victim. Okay, okay. all right. Do I look broken? No, come you on. don't. Right. You don't. Do I but, not? But how, do we, but how do we get no, you back? No, come on. Come on. This is vital. You're only a victim if you behave like a victim, if you're crushed like a victim, if you respect the people who do it. I don't respect them. I treat them with the most absolute yeah. disdain and contempt. They happen to manage so much of our public life, they are not worthy of shining my shoe, and I'm wearing <laughs> suede. Right. David Starkey, how do we get you back on the telly? Uh, well, we're doing a good imitation. Well, there we are. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> You're not yet mainstream, but you'll come on. Maybe we get together and work together. I we're doing a pretty good double act. I, I moment, remember being mainstream. Yes. Me, mainstream's terrifying. I mean, I remember leading UKIP, this fringe, marginal party, where they said all sorts of dreadful things about us. And I remember... Founded by my friend, Alan you know, Yeah, yes, when we yes. won the European elections of 2014, mm -hmm. I said to the team, I'm going to have to resign. We've become respectable. Yes. We've become Terrible. mainstream, Terrible. I know. Terrible. David, thank you for coming and speaking with such amazing passion. You're an incredibly resilient guy. You've done so much for this. Ladies and gentlemen, that was David Starkey. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. And... That's the end of the show.